Well, good morning and welcome to you folks at Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you with us today. Well, in case you haven't noticed, uh, technically it's not fall yet. I think we still have like 12 days or so to go. But practically speaking, it's fall, right? Have you seen the weather out there? I mean, I'm freezing the last two days. Uh, it's fall, but it isn't fall just because of the weather. It's fall because school's back in session, and that's kind of a fall thing. College football's up and running. At least Penn State, we got one half out of four that they decided to show up. The Eagles, NFL's in full swing. Eagles won their first game. It was ugly, but we're on our way to that second Super Bowl, right? The ministries of Calvary Church are now running on all cylinders. But vacations are a memory. Unless you're empty nesters and finally you're saying, we can vacation without all the kids now. That's good. Yours and others, right? But you know, fall is actually a really good time to do some assessment and reorganization. Whether you like it or not, we all live more by the school year than we do the calendar year. Isn't that right? I mean, for all practical purposes, September is the beginning of the year for us. Because our kids go to school, things start, and then we follow the school year. We take a break at Christmas, and in summer we kind of breathe a sigh of relief. But we follow the school year, not the calendar year. The only thing we follow at the calendar year is in January we form a few resolu resolutions that we break by February. Um, September we don't do resolutions, but it is a time of assessment, and it is a time to build new patterns. And so typically we take at least one message... Um, each September and say, well, it's time for assessment. As you're forming new patterns, as life is changing a little bit, as we're starting a new school year, maybe I need to evaluate how I'm spending my time, my energy, my money, and I need to reestablish some patterns that I'll be glad indefinitely that I've changed. So maybe for some of you, you're saying, you know, I come to Calvary Church and I talk a lot about the Bible. You know, maybe it'd be a good pattern to establish to read the Bible, you know, to make Bible reading, Bible reflection a part of your normal life. So maybe it's 15 minutes a day, 5, 10 minutes a day, and you take a place and you put your butt in a chair and you kind of work your way through something. We're going to be looking at Romans, so maybe say, you know what, I'll read a chapter of Romans a day. And every couple of weeks you'll read through Romans and you'll know what's going on probably better than the rest of us. Or maybe you say, well, you know, I, I do a little of that Bible reading and reflection, you know, but, but I'm not very good at the prayer thing. Well, now would be a great time to say, as I evaluate and assess, I need to kind of ratchet up my prayer time and energy and pray for the needs of people. If God really exists and he really wants to work in our lives, then I can have a big part in what's happening in the world and in our community and our church and in my neighborhood as I pray for what's happening. Or maybe you think, well, you know, I'm here today, and it was raining outside, couldn't do anything else, figured I'd come to church, but maybe a pattern is, I want to make attendance at church a more regular pattern in my life. Well, show up next week, it's a good start, we're going to look at Romans, and you could be here right at the beginning, and understand at the kickoff, kind of what's happening. Or maybe you're thinking, yeah, boy, coming off a of summer, I got lots of red ink in my checkbook and in my bank account. Maybe the pattern I need to establish is a little fiscal responsibility. Maybe I need to watch the expense line a little bit so that I'm able to have some resource to put into play to continue what Jesus started 
Because part of Jesus' way of doing ministry is it requires money and resource to do it. Look, I'm not sure what that evaluation and analysis means for you, but I do know fall's a good time and September's a good time to do a little evaluation, a little assessment, and then to make some changes to build some new patterns that will follow you not only through the year, but maybe follow us through the rest of our lives. Well, we're going to kind of do that today by looking at something related to church, but an accurate understanding of church, not our misunderstanding of church. So, for example, when I say the word church, I know that most of you and almost everybody in the world immediately thinks of a place and a service. A church, oh yeah, that's a church over there. You're all sitting in a church, or maybe church is a service you attend like you're in church right now. You do understand, though, that in the New Testament, in New Testament times, nobody would have had those thoughts because there were no places called church and there were no services called church. That's kind of a new invention. When Jesus said church, he meant something much, much more significant than that. Jesus meant community. And Jesus liked to use the picture of family to describe the community. And for some of you, that's really good news. For example, how many of you grew up in a family that was a little disappointing? Oh, don't raise your hand. A little disappointing. Boy, if I had to kind of pick my own, I wouldn't have done this. That's a rhetorical question, right? No hands raised. Um, Well, the good news is if you grew up in a family that was somewhat disappointing and God never intended for your family of origin to be your ultimate family. God intended the community called church to be your ultimate family. On one occasion, Jesus' mother and brothers, they kind of show up where he was gathered with some friends and and his mom's at the door and like a typical overprotective mom, she says, tell my son Jesus I'm here and I'd like a good seat up front. And so the usher comes up and says, hey, Jesus, by the way, your mother and brothers are at the door. And Jesus said, what? No. Who are my mother and brothers? Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? And then he said, these people here, my followers, they're my mother and my brothers. Now, that's a little radical to us. But back in that culture, you can ratchet up the significance of family exponentially over what family means today. Jesus is saying, regardless of your family of origin, regardless of how disappointing it may have been, God never intended that to be your ultimate family. God intended the community called church to be your ultimate family. And then Jesus gives us characteristics or ways we need to live in that family. And he does that by giving us a whole series of one another's. See our title today? Uh, Go back one slide. See that title today? Blank one another. Now be careful what you fill in the blank with, all right? And don't be nasty. We're in church. Um, what, What should we do? Well, there are 59 one another's in the New Testament. And since you have nothing better to do this afternoon, the weather's bad, we're going to look at every one of those 59. No, we're not. We're going to look at a couple, but we're going to use the few we look at as kind of like buckets to put all the others in. So we're going to do a little bit of a sampling, and then we're going to look at one in particular, but you're going to see that all of the one another's are actually the characteristics that Jesus wants us to live out in the family, the community called church. Now, the overarching one another 
actually appears in John's gospel. And Jesus says it like this. A new commandment I give you. Here it is. Love one another. Love one another. I don't know about you, but I kind of wish he would end there. But then he goes on and says, as I have loved you. Like he didn't say, love one another the way you want to. Love one another as they deserve to be loved by you. Love one another if you feel like it. No, no, no. He says, love one another as I have loved you. That kind of raises the bar a little bit, right? And so rather than our tit-for-tat kind of love that we often do, Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Isn't that interesting? Here's what Jesus says. The evidence for you being a Christian is not that you go to church a lot. The evidence of you being a Christian is not that you've memorized a bunch of Bible verses. The primary evidence of you being a Christian is not that you've memorized or you put together this theological doctrinal statement. It's not that you live by a carefully crafted list of do's and don'ts. It's not that you know a whole bunch of stuff. It's not that you critique and condemn people. It's not that you call people sinner. The main evidence of you being a Christian is loving one another. So here's my question. Is there enough evidence for you to be convicted? Isn't it funny? We often gravitate to the simplistic and the superficial, like a doctrinal statement, a list of do's and don'ts, getting our statements correct, rather than living substantively with the energy and the power of loving one another. That's the primary one another. In fact, all the other one another's are really nothing more than fleshing out the big one another to love one another. So here are some of the others. Be at peace with one another. That's what love is, right? Being at peace. Wash each other's feet. I'm not into that, right? Feet are funky. But it's a metaphor. In that culture, they washed one another's feet. We're not going to do that. Submit to one another. Admonish one another. Speak the truth to one another. Be devoted to one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We're not going to do that one either. Some of them are culturally sensitive, right? But all of those fit under the big umbrella to love one another. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little sampling of some of the one another's to show you how they work. So here's the first one. Love one another, and one of the ways we love one another is we carry one another's burdens. We carry one another's burdens. You ever notice as you go through life, life's hard, right? And sometimes you've got to carry a load and it doesn't seem that you're able to carry the load. The other night, Kim and I were watching television and she went and got the nail polish, not for me, for her, and she couldn't open the nail polish. I sat there just waiting, waiting, waiting for Kim to admit her weakness and to come asking if I, the strong man of the family, could open the nail polish. Would you please open this for me? She handed it to me. I tried and tried. I couldn't open that darn thing of nail polish, right? I mean, I got it in my mouth. I'm going to open this thing. right? I I couldn't get it open. So if I hand it back, I said, I can't open it. But then I realized, oh, okay, 
you should go into the kitchen and get one of those little rubber dingy things, right? And you put it on the top and that'll be able to turn it. So she got up, went in, came back, and it was open. See, she needed me to open the nail polish, right? I came alongside and carried her burden. I told her to go get the rubber thing and she'd be able to open it. And it worked. See? Carry one another's burdens. I was actually reminded of uh, carrying one another's burdens uh, this morning. We meet as a worship arts programming tech team every Sunday morning before services. We usually meet back here. And uh, Justin has us share prayer requests and then we pray for the service and for each other. And this morning, the prayer requests that were shared were like overwhelming. I mean, physical issues and surgeries, death of a friend, a family member, big issues that we're facing, th things that none of us individually can carry. But the picture was we can share the requests together and we can carry each other's burdens together. That's a picture. Jesus says you can love one another by carrying one another's burdens. I read a, a story this week about a woman who calls her friend, and her friend answers the phone, and she says, so how are you doing? And the woman says, I'm not doing well at all. I've got a throbbing headache. The kids are berserk. They're running around the house. The house is a mess. There's nothing here to eat. I'm not ready for lunch. The kids are screaming. They're hungry. I don't know what I'm going to do. And the woman on the phone said, relax, relax. Go upstairs. Start a bath. I'm coming over. I'll get there. After your bath, you go in and lie down in bed. You take it easy. I will clean the house. I'll take care of the kids. I'll feed them lunch. And I'll prepare dinner so that when your husband Sam gets home, he's ready to eat. She says, Sam? My husband's not named Sam. So, oh, I'm sorry. I must have dialed the wrong number. And she said, so does that mean you're not coming over? You know one of the big differences in our world? is that often no one's coming over. In previous years, in previous centuries, people were always coming over. Family members would come over and church members and friends would come over and they'd come over to share the load and carry the load. But in our isolated, lonely world, often nobody's coming over. And so when it says, carry each other's, carry one another's burdens, here's what Jesus is saying. If you need help and your burden is getting a little too heavy, you need to pick up the phone and ask somebody to come over. And if you see somebody else whose burden seems pretty heavy, you need to leave your house and you need to go over. And we need to carry one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? To love one another. And we often do that by carrying one another's burdens. Well, the next way we can love one another is to accept one another. Accept one another. And I really like the one another's, but Jesus never stops, or Paul never stops with just the one another. He always adds to it in a way that kind of ticks me off. And so, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Here he says, accept one another. Because they deserve it, because you want to, because they're really good people. No, no, accept one another as Jesus accepted you. How did Jesus accept you? Faults, flaws, warts, 
problems, accepted you anyway. How should we accept other people? Accept them with their faults, with their flaws, as messed up as they are, just the way Jesus accepted us. Jesus doesn't say, now clean up your act and then I'll accept you. No, 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 that's kind of a human invention. Jesus says, you just come to me however you are. I'll accept you. And then he says, now I want you guys to accept one another. You guys put flesh and blood onto my acceptance of you by living out that acceptance with one another. Most of you know I have a 15-month-old grandson named Jeffrey. And uh, sometimes I think about, you know, having kids and grandkids, that's not really a good cost-benefit analysis proposition. Did you ever notice that? Like, parents and grandparents, you don't come out on the positive end of that deal, right? You don't come out on the positive end financially, time-wise, energy-wise. Like, little kids, they just take and take and take and take. And you don't get a whole lot back, right? I mean, really kind of a bad investment in this thing is what I'm thinking. What does Jesus say? Your family. In families, you don't do a cost-benefit analysis. Families aren't about getting what you think you deserve. It's not about you give so you get. Families are about you give and you love one another and you accept one another. And regardless of the price that has to be paid, you're together. You bear one another's burdens, you accept one another, and you love each other regardless. In fact, you could say, a family is different than all other relationships because a family involves an irrational commitment for the other person's benefit. Isn't that right? Families have an irrational commitment. There's no rational reason we should be committed to our kids the way they often treat us. There's no rational reason you should be responsible and you should care for your grandkids the way you do. Families are about an irrational commitment for the benefit of the other person because love's deeper than the payback. Jesus says, you're not just a community, you're a family. In church, we should have an irrational commitment. doesn't make sense for the benefit and the good of one another. Except one another. Then there's another one. This one's even harder than those. Confess your sins to one another. Some of you, Charles, are you on drugs? Can, what? I mean, I don't even want my best friends and I'm going to stand up. Now, hear me out, hear me out. Confess your sins to one another so you can pray for one another that you'd be healed. Notice, it doesn't say, confess your sins to one another so now you've got the goods on them, right? Now you can blackmail them, right? Extortion, you'll gossip if they, no, 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 no. Confess your sins to each other so you can pray for each other that they would be healed. You ever notice, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus has the uncanny, the annoying ability of pointing out exactly what people want to hide. You ever notice that? Whatever you're trying to hide, that's what Jesus points out. Whatever you're trying to keep in the dark, that's where Jesus shines the light. For example, Zacchaeus, a greedy tax collector, climbs a tree to see Jesus standing in the background. Jesus walks up, Zacchaeus, you greedy wretch, you. 
shines the light right on the guy, right? I'm going to stay at your house today. Shining the light. Zacchaeus wants to hide all that stuff. Jesus shines the light. How about the woman at the well? She was not real good with men, right? A series of marriages, a series of men. She's living with some guy now she's not married to. If there's something she wants to hide, it's her relationship with men and all of her failures with men. Jesus says, hey, I got an idea. Let's talk about the men in your life. Let's talk about the five husbands you had. And now the guy you're living with. Let's talk about that. I mean, it's almost like, Jesus, are you into pain or what? How about the woman caught in adultery? The religious leaders bring her. They want to shame her. Jesus says, after they all leave, okay, so let's talk about your sin. And we think of that as being cruel. It's not cruel. Because Jesus knows every human being wants to be loved. But we're so afraid that if people knew who we were, that they wouldn't love us. So we hide all the stuff that we think would repel them. But in hiding and pretending, we're always fearful that if they knew, they wouldn't love us which means we will never be loved. So what does Jesus do? He points out what we're trying to hide, and he says, I know it. I know all of it. And I love you. I know it, and I accept you. Now we're really loved. It's that love that transforms and changes. See, our strategy of trying to be loved by hiding leads to never being able to be loved. We're always fearful people will find out. Jesus shines the light on what we're trying to hide so he can love us. I'm not much of a liturgical guy. Some of you used to go to more formal churches, uh, liturgical churches. But the one thing I really like about a liturgical church service is the prayer of confession time. Remember that? Some of you went there, right? Now, who reads the prayer of confession? The congregation does, right? So it's usually printed. It's kind of formal. The congregation together reads the prayer of confession. And it goes something like this. I am sinful. I am weak. I am a wretch. I'm a mess. I'm a screw-up. Right? All these things. And so you admit all these problems that you have, right? Prayer of confession goes on and on. And by the time you're done, you feel like, you know, a slug, you know. And, but hopefully you're praying the prayer sincerely. What happens after the prayer of confession? Then the priest comes out. And the priest, not the congregation, the priest then speaks words of absolution. And the priest says, I've heard the confession. And in the name of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and resurrection, we are forgiven and accepted. You see, it's the confession coming clean that allows the absolution, the acceptance, the forgiveness to then flow. And that's what's transformative. You see, Jesus knows that. Now, I'm not saying go confess your deepest, darkest secrets to everybody. I mean, you, yeah, that crazy people do that. But I sure hope you have one or two people. I sure hope there are some people that you can come all the way clean with and you can experience a flesh and blood statement of being known and still being loved. Jesus does that perfectly. Nobody else can. But sometimes it helps to have a flesh and blood person right in front of you, live out the gospel as you do that. Confess your sins to one another. Notice there's love, right? Being known and being loved. Well, that's kind of a sampling. I want to take the rest of our time 
and look at one of the one another's that actually live out, maybe in the most pointed way, what it means to love one another. And that is serving. So we did a little sample. Now let's talk about serving. Here's, a, here's our serving verse. Serve one another humbly in love. If you're going to serve somebody, it will take humility. Because if you're going to serve somebody, you put your interests behind theirs. You put your, your priorities behind theirs. You humble yourself. You put them first. If you don't put them first, you can't serve them. If you're, not, if you're putting yourself first, not them, you can't love them. You see, love and service kind of go together. How do you spell love in the Bible? S-E-R-V-E. Love and service, they're opposite sides of the same coin. The first thing you need to know is that we, were, we are called to serve. I love how Peter says it in 1 Peter. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Now, he's not writing to clergy. He's writing to anybody in the church that wants to read the letter. Here's the dilemma. In the ancient world, there was always this two-track classification for people. There were priest people, and then there were regular people. And every ancient society had it. You know, Israel had it, as well as all the pagan cultures. They all had it. There were two classes, two tiers. There were religious people and regular people. Excuse me, priest people and regular people. Now, the priests could say things that the regular people couldn't say. The priests could go places that the regular people couldn't go. The priests could sacrifice certain things that regular people couldn't. The priests could pray prayers that the regular people couldn't pray. That's why we see in Jesus, the Bible says, our ultimate priest. So picture it like this. Um, in the ancient world, you have a two-tier, two-track system. Priest people and regular people. They all kind of find their climax in Jesus, the ultimate priest. Jesus comes and makes the sacrifice that no one else can make. Regular person or priest person. Jesus prays the prayer that no one else can pray. It is finished. Jesus does what no priest or regular person can do. Now, you would think, if you're just walking out that trajectory, you would think that Jesus then puts an end to priests. But that's not what he does. In fact, he does the opposite. In the ancient world, there were two tracks, regular people and priest people. They all find their climax in Jesus, the ultimate priest, who prays and goes places and says things and sacrifices what no priest or regular person could. And now he says, you're all priests. I want all of my followers to be priests. There's no place a follower of Jesus can't go. There's no prayer a follower of Jesus can't pray. There's no gift a follower of Jesus can't give. You know, sometimes we get sucked back into that two-tier thing where all of a sudden, well, we've got the professionals, right? We've got the pastors, we've got the priests, we've got the regular people. What do the priests do? Well, they pray prayers that we can't pray. They visit and we can't. They do this and we... No, 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 no. That's the ancient two-tier thing. The after Jesus thing is, we're all priests. Interceding, caring, loving, visiting, sharing, serving one another. That's the new thing. The radical difference Jesus makes is that we're all called to be priests. Well, not just that. We're all gifted to serve. We're called to serve as priests, caring for one another, loving one another. And we're all gifted to serve. 
Believe it or not, every person in this room has a gift mix or gifts that no one else in the room has, which means there are certain things that you can do in this community that nobody else can do. Paul's favorite metaphor for that is the body. You know, it's kind of fun to think about. What member of the body would you be? I pegged some of you, by the way. I'm not going to say it. It would embarrass me and you. But, <laughs> but we're all members of the body. Maybe you're a toe, an ear. I know some of you are mouths, right? <laughs> um, your noses, right? Your eyes. We're all different parts of the body. Now, here's the amazing thing. Um, and maybe you're different to me. You travel in different circles. I have never, ever heard someone say something like this. I have got the most wicked headache I've ever had in my life. But my back is really feeling good today. Have you heard anybody talk like that? Or, oh my goodness, my back's so bad I can hardly, but you know what, I don't have a headache today. I'm really good from the neck up. Why is that? Why if you got a ripping headache, do you hurt all over? Why if your back's a mess, do you hurt all over? Because if one member of the body suffers, they all kind of suffer, right? We're a body. Oh, and no member of the body is supposed to be in the bleachers. Member, no member of the body is supposed to be on strike. There's an influence that only you can have with your gifts. You've been gifted and called by God to do what you can do and nobody else can do. And if you've been in the bleachers, it's time you climb out. No better time like the fall when you're doing assessment and building new patterns to say, I'm not exactly sure how God gifted me, but I know I'm called. And based on what Jesus said, I know I'm gifted. It's time to get out of the bleachers and stop being on strike and start serving people inside and outside the church. That's the gifted part. Every one of us gifted. But there's one last thing I want to say, and that is we're called to serve. We're gifted to serve. And we will be rewarded for all of our service. And that's kind of amazing if you think about it, right? God called, we don't call ourselves and say, you know what, I really want to serve God. I really want to kind of do, no, no. God calls us. God then gifts us and empowers us to do it. Like you don't earn the gifts. You don't discipline yourself to get better gifts. No, no. It, they're gifts. God gives them to us. And then when we exercise the gifts that God gave, Using the power God gives, he rewards us for what he's given. That's amazing, right? So what are those rewards? Well, they actually come uh, in a few different flavors. Let me uh, mention a couple. The first one is that you'll be rewarded because real change happens. When you exercise your gift... When you come out of the bleachers and you use what God's given you to serve and love people, God changes people through that. So here's an example you can identify with. Um, we gather together every Sunday, and there are people on the platform that lead us in worship, and there are people in the booth that work lights and sound in the production room, and we have musicians and vocalists. We have all kinds of people, right? And we, to some degree, are changed and transformed because they exercise those gifts. It's amazing, right? And so maybe you remember the lyrics to a song next week or Monday when you're at work. Or maybe you think about their worship and you say, you know what, I need to put my gifts and talents into play. You realize the people on the stage that are leading us, none of them get paid. 
They come Thursday nights and are here for hours rehearsing and preparing. And they're here early, like 6 o'clock Sunday morning, running through um, sound check. They're giving their time, energy. They're exercising their gifts. And we're changed by that. But that doesn't only happen here. That happens in children's ministry as teachers live out the gospel, don't just speak words of the gospel. It happens in student ministry as small group leaders share. It happens in women's ministries and men's ministry. It happens as Barnabas team visits. It happens in lots of different, it happens in your community as you love your neighbor as Jesus is loving you. As at work, you're picking up someone else's burden. As we exercise the gifts and use the abilities God's given us, people are changed. That's a reward, right? God's using us for eternal purposes. But isn't it also true? Those doing the serving are actually changed the most. If I've heard this once, I've heard this literally hundreds of times. Charles, I used to go to small group. I used to sit in class. I used to do all these things. But it wasn't until I led that small group. It wasn't until I taught that class until I really began to understand and I really was changed. God has so worked this deal out People are changed as we serve, and those that serve are changed as we go. And sometimes if you're like me, maybe you do acts of service, and you get a little discouraged because no one saw that. Yeah, but I want them to know. Maybe you're home and you emptied a dishwasher, and there was even a clean dish you could have used, but you emptied it anyway, right? Um, I would do that, but I don't know how to open ours. It's got this funky lock. I can't open. Or maybe you take the trash from the kitchen to the garage or the garage down to the end of the road. And you don't get a thank you. You don't get a note. You don't get anything. Make no mistake. There has never been and there will never be an act of service, small or great, that goes unnoticed by God. He knows every sacrifice you make. He knows every time you put someone else's interest ahead of your own. And when you do, small or great, I kind of picture him nodding, smiling, and keeping record. And forever, we will be glad for all those small and large acts of service, not just because people change, not just because we change, but because we're continuing what Jesus started. And that honors and glorifies our Father in heaven and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I was reminded of what it takes to do that this week. I read a LinkedIn article about Indra Nooyi. Have any of you heard that name? Indra Nooyi. Indra Nooyi was the former CEO of PepsiCo. She... Uh, just retired, not too long, about a year or so ago. And she would, think about that, the CEO of PepsiCo. I mean, a multi-billion international company. Well, she wrote in this article, looking back over the things that she learned in her career, she told one story. The day she was named president of PepsiCo. Can you think about that? She's named president of PepsiCo. Here's a woman from India, named president of PepsiCo. She can't wait to get home to tell everybody. And she's so glad that her parents are visiting from India because then she can make the big announcement. She bursts into the door and says, have I got an announcement for you. 
her mother said, oh, Indra, something else first. We're out of milk. You need to go to the grocery store right now and get a gallon of milk. She's so angry, she doesn't know how to respond. She closes the door and goes and gets the milk. But all the while she's driving, she is livid. She's just been named the president of PepsiCo, and she was just sent on a milk run by her mommy. Like, she walks in, takes the gallon of milk, and slams it onto the kitchen table, and she says, well, so much for my announcement of being named president of PepsiCo today. Without missing a beat, her mother said, well, let's get a few things straight. When you enter that door and you enter this house, you're a wife, a daughter, and a mother. And those responsibilities trump all the other accolades you may get. She said, well, why didn't you send Raj? That's her husband to get the milk. Her mother said, because I'm not Raj's mother. <laughs> and then her mother said, so let me tell you something. You're a daughter, you're a mother, and you're a wife. And when you enter this door, you have responsibilities that no one else can do except you. So you need to leave your crown in the garage when you come home. Indra wrote that as the most important lesson she learned as CEO of PepsiCo. Well, if we're a family, you've got gifts and responsibilities and a calling that no one else can do. And I know that some of you are really important people. And some of you that attend Calvary Church literally have thousands of people that report to you at work. And some of you may be over smaller teams and you've got departments that report to you and you're responsible for large sums of money and you're really important and you've made a lot of money and you've accomplished a lot. Can I tell you a little secret? If we're going to love one another, you need to, we need to all leave our crowns in the parking lot when we come to Calvary Church. That's the only way we'll love one another as we should. And the energy for that is not Indra Nuyi. The energy for that is Jesus Christ who left his crown in the garage and became a human being and bore your burden and my burden to the cross. And he was executed without a crown. And he was raised on the third day and he took that crown back. And then he said, I commission all of you, my followers, to love one another as I have loved you. And the only way you'll do that is if you leave your crowns in the garage. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the mission of Jesus that has transformed us and reconnected us to you and is reconnecting us to other people and now propels us into mission. But Lord, the only way those things can happen is if we serve one another with humility. And so, Father, help us to take our accolades and our crowns and our applause and put all those things aside and help us to look to Jesus, the one who took off his crown for us, and help us to live today as he taught us how to live, continuing what he started, longing for the day when he will put a new crown on our heads, not a crown that we've earned, but a crown that he gives us. We pray in his name. Amen.